Amos chapters 4, 5, and 6 this morning. Uh, and we'll start in 4, so you can turn uh, right back there if you were there for the scripture reading. Um, and uh, really kind of just, I guess, summarizing, connecting it to last week. Um, of course, last week we covered Amos 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and I do mention it's, it's helpful, even the way that, I know Kenny mentioned kind of how it breaks up. Uh, last week and this week, and then we'll finish Amos in November. Um, the first six chapters are actually like sort of one continuous message, and then seven, eight, and nine are a little bit of a separate one, obviously still connected. Um, so that'll work out well as far as just getting this chunk, and then we'll, we'll kind of finish it off in a, in a few weeks. Um, but last week, of course, we focused on chapters two and three, where Amos, who, remember, was a prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, is called by God to prophesy in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, now, his opening statements in mainly chapters 2 and 3 basically sought to highlight what was a very clear and uh, very obvious examples of the spiritual rottenness of the northern kingdom. He was exposing the fruits of a deeper issue that was actually related to their casual attitude towards God and their, their neglect of his word. Uh, one of the phrases that we used last week was this idea of low-hanging fruit and just recognizing that some of these topics continue to come up, that he'll reference some more of these public examples to kind of just keep it in front of us. But in chapter 4, he really begins to make a conceited effort to ensure that his audience understands the clear connection between the choices that they're making and their behaviors and their actual, their true spiritual condition in God's eyes. And so we're really just going to dive right in this morning. I know last week we kind of took some time to talk about the history of Israel up into this point, but the plan is really to just read and explain the vast majority of chapter 4, 5, and 6, uh, and really just seeing what Amos is saying in sort of these small chunks, and then be able to step back and connect it to the deeper issues that he kind of begins to describe and call out. Uh, now, as we get into this, uh, you know, you kind of just do some reading, and I, I found something that was interesting, um, looking at the ratio between fatal and non-fatal car accidents uh, related to, like, major highways and these, like, back country roads or rural roads. Um, and what was interesting, I think a lot of times when you look at car accidents, you'd think that, well, major highways, people are driving faster, there's more people so you would think mathematically that the ratio of like fatal car accidents to non-fatal would, you know, you just more people, just the volume. But actually, if you look at the ratio on these back and rural roads, the fatal, uh, like the fatal, the rate of fatal car accidents is actually higher than on major highways in, in a lot of areas. And one of the, I guess, commentators on this radio, I don't even know how you like happen upon these, but one of the commentators on this stat he basically said that when looking at the, the, the accidents themselves and how they unfolded, um, it was basically getting down to this idea that these back rural roads are people sort of, they're less busy, people aren't driving as fast, so people are more likely to drive casually, and therefore they're, they're more tempted to take risks. And that casual attitude in their driving, being willing to take risks, most of the time, or I say in a higher ratio, ends in these fatal car accidents. And I use that, I realize, as a little bit of a serious illustration, but recognizing that in a way, the, the pursuit of ease that these people had spiritually has, has basically led to this fatal, uh, this fatal casual attitude towards God and towards his word. They've gotten relaxed. They've gotten casual towards God. They've synchronized some things with their own personal preferences or ideas. 
And so that synchronizing of self and God has created this really, again, we say fatal spiritual condition. And that's exactly what Amos starts to call out. I know Kenny obviously read verses one through five, and what's really helpful about the first five verses of chapter four is they really summarize the entire message that he's trying to get across in chapters four, five, and six. So I'm going to read those again just to kind of put it in front of us in that context and then work through them briefly. But he said, hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. The Lord God hath sworn by his holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you when you when, uh, that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. And ye shall go out at the breaches, every cow at that which is before her, and ye shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. And bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord. So what we find very quickly is a warning against selfishness and showing that neglecting humility before God in order to pursue self is always going to lead to trouble. Now, this warning comes through the image of the cows of, of Bashan. So this, the kind of Bashan, it's the cows of Bashan. Uh, and Bashan is a region that's actually east of the Sea of Galilee, and it, it kind of goes all the way to the edge of the Arabian Desert. Now, it's referenced several times in the Old Testament, and it's always connected to the land's uh, fertility. It's a really, really, really fertile area. There's volcanic soil is extremely nutrient-rich, and then when you add an average of 40 inches of rain annually, um, the result is a, an area that historically has been uh, a great place to farm and even to raise cattle. In fact, it actually, the area was so fertile and it produced so much wheat in the Roman occupation era, so closer to the New Testament, that the Romans actually called Bashan the breadbasket of Israel. Now, in specific reference to the cattle that he talks about, because of how rich and healthy the grass and the crops were, the cows in this area were known to be abnormally large, strong, and healthy. However, uh, they were also known to be incredibly headstrong and actually violent. It was very common for these cows, this specific breed of cows, to violently break through fences just so that they could continue eating. So I don't know if you've heard of like Wagyu beef. When, we, when you hear Wagyu, you're like, oh, that's like a luxury line of beef, right? From like these Japanese cows. Okay, when they say the cows of Bashan, there's this, in their minds, it's a luxury line. The luxury, it's like the whatever, like the luxury liner of cows in their mind. But again, this luxury line of cows pictured comfort, ease, provision, but ultimately were, like animals are, slaves of their own appetites. Now, what does he use that illustration to describe? Uh, so this kind, it's, a it's literally referencing a female cow, and the idea is wives. And then the word at the end of verse um, 4 that's masters, that, that word is actually husbands. And so what you actually have pictured here in this husband and wife situation uh, and some other servants thrown in there, it's actually a really twisted, selfish marriage. The wife is abusing and manipulating others, including her own husband, 
in order to, to live luxuriously, luxuriously, whatever that word is, and I can't read my own typing, it doesn't work, um, in order to live luxuriously, there it is, and selfishly. And actually, I want to kind of catch this because this, this verse is actually supposed to tie your brain back to Jezebel and Ahab. So this idea from First and Second Kings, this woman uh, pictured here, she doesn't want to lift a finger, but wants to be cared for and waited on for everything. And although it may seem that she's in control, the tie to this cow of Bashan, uh, it's telling you that she's actually a slave of her own desires. And again, it's interesting seeing this effect on the home. If you remember Amos chapter 2, verse 7, where we talked about a father failing his son by teaching him to engage in things that brought on God's condemnation. And now, back in the home, a wife using her relationship with her husband to manipulate him and others to get what she wants. Now, I do want to point out that the emphasis of this is not the woman. He's not like calling out necessarily, but the whole image is supposed to paint a picture of what people were like in this time in the society. So it's true of everyone. And I, I really just ask and answer this question, how do you know, how do you know that a society is collapsing spiritually? And you look at this and you look at a lot of the other things that Amos talks about, and it's when the glorification of self, self-service and self-worship becomes religion, and you could say humanism. One commentator summarized the situation this way. This is a sad picture of extortion, exploitation, and the manipulation of others in order to bankroll a pursuit of personal desires. Lacking empathy for others, this individual carries an it's-all-about-me philosophy of living, where others are but a means to an end, which sadly includes their own spouses. This is an important example early on in this section of chapters, because as Amos dives into the deeper issue of their service and worship to God, he is constantly bringing back up this idea of, we say, selfishness or pride, pursuing self as the most obvious example of their true distance from God and their true disposition towards God. So chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, you're going to see this constantly come up and this image sort of pictured, and it's always tying back to this pride, the selfishness, and actually what we're going to call, we're going to say pride, but we're going to call it what it is this morning, it's self-worship. And so what's the result of this pursuit? The details are going to be in chapter 5 and 6, but as you see in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 4, the result is judgment, consequences, and misery. The pursuit of self will always cause misery and suffering. Verse 2 is a reference to the Assyrian captivity. Verse 3 is leaving the city, and you'll notice uh, in verse 3 it says that they're, they're leaving or they go out at the breaches. So these are people in a city, a walled city. So where do you typically go in and out of a walled city? The gates, right? But he says they're leaving the city through what? Through breaches, holes in the wall. So he's saying the destruction is going to be so bad and your, wall, your walls are going to be blown so away that you don't have to go to the gate. You just walk right through the wall itself. So it's this image of destruction as a result of this self-worship. And then verse 4 and 5, he calls out their selfish worship. They were still doing the right things, quote-unquote, but they had synchronized it with personal preference and selfish pursuits. And this key phrase in verse 5 is really helpful. At the very end, what does he say? For this liketh you. He's saying you're doing what you love. 
you're doing what makes you feel good, and that's, that's in a sense, make sure, like exposing the real problem. You're doing what pleases you, not what pleases God. So as we work through chapter 4, 5, and 6, we're going to find that God's call to repentance actually begins and ends from Amos with a warning of self-focused living. And I say this, I, I realize that none of us probably wants to think selfish, uh, and I put it this way, we certainly don't want to think of ourselves as a cow of bacon. Uh, but looking at that, we say, I, I, you know, even looking at our own lives, we would say, wow, I, I, you know, I don't really pursue luxury. Do you see the car I drive? Or, you know, I, I don't manipulate my spouse. And we start to think, you know, I'm fine because I don't, I don't do this. But I want you to understand that the pursuit of self, and this is where a lot of people, I say, even get confused with Amos, the pursuit of self is not limited to material things. It's pursuing your desires, pursuing what you want, emphasizing yourself and what you want to the loss of what really matters. So to kind of connect it maybe to a different point, how are we spiritually selfish? Well, we ignore or we blow off conviction from God's word because we want to be comfortable. That would be selfish worship, self-worship. We're concerned more with temporal and spiritual comfort than we are with accurately bearing God's image. And that's kind of what Amos is beginning to deal with. Now, I do point this out because I, I just think it's an important note. When I say comfort, so this morning I'm going to say comfort a lot, pursuing comfort, comfort, comfort. Uh, I just want to clarify, when we talk about pursuing comfort, we're not saying when, when the, you know, it's wrong to pursue comfort from God in a difficult time. That's a totally different topic, talking about comfort in a difficult circumstance. When I say comfort this morning, we're talking about being temporally comfortable or seeking ease because we're getting what we think is valuable or we're doing what we believe is desirable. And everything somehow is always linking back to self. So the image that Amos is calling out in this society was of a person who is a slave to their own desires. And again, you see this image in Romans, a slave to sin, a servant of their goals and ambitions. Their relationships are shallow and are oriented around what they can get out of people. And this is a really sharp contrast, of course, to principles like John 3.30, right? That he must increase, but I must decrease. That in order for God to be greatly glorified in our lives, there has to be a decrease of self and an increase of Christ. This is, of course, also going to be linked back to um, Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, the idea does to a certain extent imply the improper and irreverent use of God's name, but understand ultimately it's about the way we carry God's name in our lives every day. So as you bear God's name in your life, the, the idea is don't you dare carry it vainly or inaccurately because our lives are about God's glory and not ours. The moment that anything in our Christian life becomes about us, everything is always going to get mixed up. Amos communicates to these people that their selfish pursuit of their own temporal comfort, desires, and preferences was actually the greatest condemnation against them in exposing the, the, the deeper issue of their casual attitude towards God and towards his word. Remember that this is all happening, and we'll see it this morning, in the context of people who thought they were still honoring or worshiping God. But that worship and service centered on self, 
personal preference, and it was used to justify doing and seeking their own desires. So the thinking was, yeah, maybe some of this stuff isn't ideal, but I still sacrifice to Yahweh, I mean, among other gods, but I still sacrifice, uh, I still tithe to the temple and to the priests, or even some of this, this I, I still celebrate most of the feasts that God told us we're supposed to. So that's sort of their justification. But as we're going to find this morning, this syncretism of self-worship and God-worship was not compatible. And to use kind of a goofy illustration, because they, they saw their synchronizing of personal preference and God's law as, as coffee and creamer. So if you're a like, black coffee person, this won't apply to you. I apologize. Uh, but their idea of syncretism with self and God worship was it's coffee and creamer. It mixes perfectly, brings about a better result. Like that was, that was their idea of, of this syncretism with God. But I use this as a flip-flop. Amos is pointing out that it's really oil and water. It's not coffee and creamer. It's, it's oil and water. They're completely opposite. Self and God are completely opposite and separated from one another that self and God don't mix. God was not accepting any of their worship, and it was ultimately because their lives and their decision-making philosophy was about them and not about God's glory. So in summary, before we start working through this, uh, Amos 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3, expose the low-hanging fruit to show them the evidence of a deeper problem. That was the rotten fruit we talked about last week. Now, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he shows that the core of these issues, or to stick with sort of our tree example, the branches that are producing the rotten fruit are all connected to this tree trunk of self-worship and syncretism. And as we're about to see in verse, um, I'm sorry, chap, the rest of 4 and then 5 and 6, at the roots of this self-tree is actually the seeds of self-worship that linked back to a casual attitude towards God and a neglect of his word. So the results of self-worship, we're going to see all the way through chapter 4 into the beginning of chapter 5. The first five verses, the description of pride, and as I said, we're calling pride what it is this morning. It's self-worship. Uh, verse 1, this is not a person that you want to be, and although it may seem like they have power, influence, and luxurious comfort— in reality, they are just a slave to their own wants and desires. What happens when you pursue, or what happens when you pursue this philosophy of living? And we're going to see that as it all plays out, the first symptom is actually deception, self-deception, that you think you're fine, but we're not. And then actually self-delusion, it's the idea of being completely out of touch with reality. And both of these are touched on in verses 6 through 11. So look at verse 6. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in, your, in all your cities and want of bread in all your places. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And I also, and also I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest and I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet, back to this key phrase, yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have smitten you with blasting and mildew in your gardens and your vineyards fig trees and your olive trees increased, the devoured them, yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt, 
Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses. And I have made the stink of your camps to come up, uh, up unto your nostrils. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. So over and over and over, God had providentially orchestrated and allowed a series of hardships in their lives with the purpose of humbling them and drawing them back to God. And I really stop and we say how magnificently gracious and patient of God to do this for his people. And you really do see this, this um, you see God's heart for them. But again, in this, recognize that they had completely missed it. They never learned and they never returned to God. And this is the point that self-worship makes you delusional. It produces a person who is so out of touch with reality that they are actually missing what God is doing in their lives. So you see this drought and this famine, and then actually you see circumstances that are echoing back to plagues on Egypt from Exodus where God's hand obviously was undeniably working. And that becomes the point. It is so clear and so obvious what God is doing, and yet they completely missed it. They're delusional. And then what's the result? Look at chapter 4, 12, and then we'll go to the, first, to the third verse of chapter 5. Therefore, so what's the result? Because of this, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. For lo, he that formeth the mountains and createth the wind and declareth unto man what is his thought that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Then chapter 5, verse 1, Hear ye this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation or a funeral song, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise up raise her up. For thus saith the Lord, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave an hundred, and that which went forth by an hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. So whether it's in the world at large, on large scale, or just within our own lives, we do need to remember that God is working and that he is giving people proofs of his displeasure, calling all to repentance. Now, these things, these circumstances that we see laid out should have been so obvious to this nation, to the northern kingdom here, and yet they're missing it actually illustrates just how hardened and how numb that they'd become. And I just wrote this, that this is a fate that we should fear as God's people, being so comfortable with what displeases God that when his hand exposes it, we completely miss it. And we come back to this pride, this self-worship. It will produce self-deception and self-delusion. And you see this reference in James 1.22 all the way to the end of the chapter, right? It warns us about the idea of being a doer of God's word, not just a hearer, but why? Because you deceive yourself. You deceive yourself into a false sense of security by knowing but not doing, living, applying, repenting, you deceive yourself into a false sense of security, and again, you become delusional, out of touch with reality. So again, you, you see kind of the depth of the problem, but what does God do now? So they've, he's done these things, they've missed it, they haven't returned, judgment is coming, so how does God respond to this reality in their lives? 
And then we see this in verses 4 through 9, uh, continuing in chapter 5. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. But seek not Bethel, so remember the place, that, that capital of worship, nor enter into Gilgal, another place of worship, and pass not to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. Seek the Lord, and ye shall live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. Ye who turn judgment to wormwood, and leave off righteousness in the earth, seek him that maketh the seven stars in Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into morning, and maketh the day dark with night, that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name, that strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. And it's fascinating, what do you see? Another call to repentance. God continues calling his children by name, calling them to wake up, to believe, to repent, and to follow him. Now, I realize, and again, if you, if you study Amos, it is a very heavy confrontational book. And to be fair, it's supposed to be. But please do not miss God's indescribable goodness, mercy, graciousness, his patience. Don't miss his love for his people in the midst of their ignorance and arrogance. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you see a beautiful, praiseworthy example of this right here. Now this continues through verse 17. So now look at verse 10 uh, of chapter 5. I almost read the wrong chapter. Uh, chapter 5 at verse 10. That would have been confusing. Uh, they hate him. Chapter 5, verse I'm like, now I'm worried. Chapter 10, got it. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins." They afflict the just, they take a bribe, they turn aside the poor and the gate from their right. Therefore, the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. So just to be clear, he's not, he's not excusing their sin. He's still being clear. But then what does he say again in verse 14? Seek good and not evil, that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. So you see this, this faithful remnant mentioned again. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, wailing shall be in the streets, and they shall say in all the highways, alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing. And, all, and in all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord." This idea, again, of seek God, reject evil, reject wrong, reject self-worship, grow and change. It's very similar to Micah 6.8, right? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And again, it's a call to repentance. And the idea is, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is rejecting God means bearing the weight and the consequences of your own sin, specifically within the context of eternity, so chapter 5 offers an encouraging 
but also a very serious reminder. Those that seek God will live. When we ignore God, we do it to our own peril. And we actually see this thought graphically illustrated in the rest of chapter 5 and then into chapter 18. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the, the melody of thy veals. But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch, and Chiun your images, the star god, which ye made to yourselves." Therefore will I cause you to go down into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So verses 18 through 20, he's really trying to explain to them the foolishness of rejoicing in the day of the Lord, which if you're going to study, you say the day of the Lord in the whole context of scripture, the day of the Lord is a day of, we say God's victory, a day of judgment the execution of his holiness on sin. So if you study the day of the Lord, and I just say broadly in all of scripture, it's fascinating that it is both presented positively and negatively, but what will always determine that is actually context. So I'm going to give you a point of reference as an example. If you study the day of the Lord in a book for, uh, of uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, it is generally pictured as a day of rejoicing and a day of victory. But that's because Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing about the day of the Lord to children of God in the church era that were trying to learn. They were trying to grow. They were trying to, I say, repent and honor God. So when you study it there, it's generally positive. But by contrast, here in Amos, it is not a good thing. It's like, why, why are you celebrating the day of the Lord? He's calling it out and he's saying, it's not a day of rejoicing for you. It's a day where you'll face the consequences for rejecting and ignoring God. Now, how does he follow that up? You look at verse 19 and you read this, uh, this story. And, and it's, it, I say it, it is, um, I don't, maybe it's just sick to say it's slightly humorous. Uh, but, but in the end, it is supposed to be very sad. So the image is this guy hiking. So he's hiking, and he runs into a lion, which if you're hiking and a lion pops out, I mean, I would assume you'd be freaked. And so the idea is he's like, oh. So he turns to run from the lion, and what does he run into? A bear. And he's like, let's just say, hypothetically, somehow, he escapes the lion, and he escapes the bear. And he gets home. He locks the door. He leans up against the wall. And then what happens? Snake bite. Boom! A venomous snake bites him, and he dies. Now, I say slightly humorous because you see this, like, comedy of errors. Like, it's almost like the Three Stooges, just no matter what happens, you know. But again, what's the context of it? 
the context is you're celebrating the day of the Lord, and it's supposed to be a day of weight that, that draws you to repentance. And he's saying by this, I say slightly comical, but in the end, the illustration is someone who thinks that they can escape God's judgment of their own decisions. But no amount of blame, shift, blame shifting, no amount of victimization, no excuse or wiggle room will get them out of the situation that they have put themselves in by rejecting God. And again, we get into this context of eternity. Verses 24 through 27, his idea here is just basically, right, you've chosen these idols. You have made your decision. You've chosen self because you're following what you think is better or what's best. And what's fascinating here is we find ourselves right back at self-worship. And it is, I wrote, it's an almost impressive amount of pride, not impressive, but almost, the amount of pride that it takes to think that we can treat God casually, that we can reject and ignore his word, but somehow still be okay. When you move into chapter six, it's basically the same thing all over again, with Amos trying to expose to them the danger of this self-worship, this philosophy of living in their own lives. So look at um, chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. So you see this personal pursuit of comfort. It's what I want. I want to be comfortable. I want to be at ease. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Kalna and see, and from thence go ye to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms? Or are their borders greater than your border? Ye that put far away the evil day, and evil is judgment, you put far away the day of judgment and cause the seat of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall that chant to the sound of the, of the veal and invent to themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore, now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. The Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob, and I hate his palaces. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. And it shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house, that they shall die. And a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house, and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, Is there, any yet, any, is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, No. Then shall he say, Hold thy tongue. For we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great house with breaches, and the little house with clefts. Again, this is all filled with images of self. And again, you kind of are seeing the, the gravity of the situation again. And he's just trying to illustrate the depth of the problem. Your self-worship has created this, this contaminated, selfish society that is so focused on themselves and they're not even concerned with serving or, or honoring God anymore. 
But what's interesting is you trace through verses 1, verses 1 through 8, you actually see images and explanations of the product of this sinful ease. So he starts the whole chapter, Woe unto you that are at ease in Zion. To give you a little bit of a picture, there are people on the beach partying, relaxing, and there's like a tsunami on the horizon. And it's so close that there's a shadow starting to be cast over the beach. And what are they doing? Still partying, still relaxing. Judgment is coming. This is a really serious situation. And you are just at ease, sprawled on your couches, drinking, uh, partying, relaxing. You're doing this. And he says, woe unto you. This is a serious situation, and again, going back to this self-deception and this delusion, the tidal wave is creating a shadow, and they're like, oh, the sun isn't going to toast me, oh, right? They're, they're, they're totally out of touch with what's really going on. And as you work through verses 1 through 8, you actually see some very specific, tangible things that their self-worship had produced. In verses 1 and 2, you actually see presumption. They are presuming on God's goodness while ignoring his holiness. In the first part of three, we see procrastination. They are putting off what is needed for what was personally preferred. The second part of verse three, we see cruelty, unempathetic and harsh in their evaluations, their judgments of other people. And again, this is going to be tied to self-righteousness. They're at error, not me. I'm fine. This just this cruelty and being unempathetic in their evaluation of others. Then verses um, 4, 5, and 6 is the idea of overindulgence. It's a pursuit of personal comfort, and it had created a false sense of security, which again, now we find ourselves right back at self-deception and being delusional. The end of it, 6, 7, and 8, is this careless ignorance and rejecting the truth of their lives or the, the truth of the reality of their own decisions. And I just want to point this out again because this is where people go back to, oh, it's the rich against the poor and da-da-da-da-da. But note, what does he say in verse 11? I'm going to read it again because this is very important in the context of the whole book. God will smite the great house and what? The little house. So just to be clear to what we talked about last week, the corruption that he's talking about is true of every level of their society. This was not about the wealthy, the political, and the powerful neglecting the poor. Connecting back to last week, Amos is not about social or temporary issues. It's about God's glory. This is about God's people neglecting their responsibility to represent God, to serve, to love, and to honor him according to his word, not our preferences or our self-worship. So to finish it off, what is the end result for those that continue to ignore and reject God's call to repentance? Look at verse 12 to 14 to finish off chapter 6. Shall horses run upon the rock? Will one plow there on the rock with oxen? For ye have turned judgment into gall and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Ye which rejoice in a thing of naught, you're rejoicing in something you shouldn't, which say, have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? But behold, I will raise up against you a nation. Again, he's talking about Assyria. A house, O house of Israel, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of the wilderness. So their pride, their self-worship, 
was, it's illustrated by two things, a horse running on rocks and an ox trying to plow a boulder. Now, I do point out, because this is important, uh, this is in an era where horseshoes were not used. So the basic premise of a horseshoe is to protect the horse's foot. So you have to remove that and then look at the image. A horse running on rocks without the protection of a, of a horseshoe, what's it going to do? It's going to injure the horse. It's going to cause problems. So you have the image of a horse running on rocks, and it's, it's actually, you almost start to, you feel pity for the animal. Like, why, why would your rider let you do that, you punk? You know, like you, it, the, so the, the horse is injured. So it's as injurious, your, your self-worship is as injurious as a horse without horseshoes running on rocks. And then he takes it one step forward. It's also as unproductive as an ox trying to plow a boulder which is sort of ironic because you would also probably injure your ox. So it's injurious and it's unproductive. That's going to be the result of self-worship. Your pride, our pride, my pride, is an injury-causing, is as injury-causing as a horse running on rocks and as unproductive as an ox trying to plow a boulder. We are only hurting ourselves, and we make zero meaningful progress when we ignore God and we choose to worship and serve ourselves. Verses 13 and 14, and I just say this, this is the sad result of worshiping the creation more than the creator. Worshiping what's in front of us instead of the God that provided. In fact, one, one commentator, uh, I thought this was a great quote, um, T.J. Betts. Uh, if you're interested, he has a great book on Amos. But he said this on this section, this is the real danger of finding comfort in what God has provided instead of worshiping and thanking the God who provided it. So in conclusion, two takeaways. What are we supposed to take away from Amos 4, 5, and 6? First, and this is for me significantly probably, but for all of us, don't pretend that pride, that self-worship is something that we don't all struggle with in some form. And I say don't ignore it, but also don't minimize it or explain it away. Uh, don't explain away or minimize the fight that we all face every single day against our flesh and its sinful desire to please ourselves instead of God. Now tied to that, the second takeaway is this. The desire for self-worship is one that you are either embracing or resisting. So this fight against self-worship, you are either embracing it or resisting it. There's, there's no gray area. We're embracing or resisting self-worship. Embracing it may come with the temporary pleasure of getting what you want, but like the sugar rush of candy, it may feel good initially, but you cannot survive on it in the long run. As Amos points out, and actually you can see this in James 1 as well, embracing a self-centered, self-focused philosophy of living will deceive you into a false sense of security. It causes you to be delusional and out of touch with reality, and you start to miss the work that God is really doing in the world around you, and sadly even in your own life. The longer we justify or even spiritualize pride or self-worship, the harder our hearts will become. And I say to tie into that, it is also the more numb we become to God's conviction through his word. 
And that is something that we do sadly see illustrated in these people in Amos chapters 4, 5, and 6. However, to end on a positive note, resisting it, resisting and fighting against self-worship puts you in a place of humility, gratitude, and obedience before the throne of God. And just as Jesus taught in Luke, in Luke 14, and it's actually echoed in James 4, remember that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up.